0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, should cooling in an apartment be the responsibility of a landlord? Well, New Westminster Council has passed a motion to explore just that idea. Plus, BC's residential real estate wealth has ballooned to over $2.1 trillion in the past 20 years. We speak to advocates who say the government should tax land wealth to build new affordable housing. And why are developers allowed to keep Vancouver condos empty for years? And we look at why British Columbians remain skeptical of self-driving cars. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk heat or more importantly, staying cool during the summer. This summer, of course, we heard the B.C. government would be providing 8,000 air conditioners to medically vulnerable low-income households. Over the next three years, we also heard news reports which showed frustrated tenants from multiple buildings around the Vancouver area being told by their landlords they wouldn't be able to install air conditioning units because of the impact they would have on the suite. Well, the city of New Westminster wants to change that. Last night, New Westminster Council passed a motion to explore ways to make cooling in rental units a necessity. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Nadine Nakagawa. She's a New Westminster City Councillor. Nadine, thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, happy to. Uh,
0: what does this motion mean?
1: Well, it means that the City of New Westminster is going to look at ways that we can make it mandatory that rental buildings will have cooling options in place for renters. Um, knowing that New Westminster was most impacted during the heat dome two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, we know that this is a really crucial step for people in our community.
0: When you say New Westminster was most impacted by the heat dome, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, we had 28 people die in our city alone, which was, for our population, was, I think, the highest anywhere in B.C. or close to the highest. And we can't be okay with that. We have to uh, take whatever action we can. And knowing that the Residential Tenancy Act isn't in our jurisdiction, um, we need to look and see what we can actually do to make sure that the, the building that tenants live in is livable knowing that we're going to have more of these extreme heat events
2: in the future.
0: So the bylaw that you wish to introduce eventually would basically make it mandatory for uh, a person to have access to air conditioning in their unit? Uh, and B, would the onus be put on the landlord then?
1: So it's not necessarily that it would be air conditioning. It would be that they would have a room that would stay cooler than 26 degrees. And we know that for some some rental units, like let's say basement suites, they might just be already cool enough. So they don't need to have air conditioning. We're not saying that every unit needs to have air conditioning. And there might be other options for other buildings, like bringing in things like heat pumps, um, which are, you know, a pretty major uh, addition too. So it's not being too prescriptive about what it means, but it's saying that there should be a room in each unit that that is under 26 degrees. Um, And we know that that's essential because even though the city is doing everything that we can, to provide uh, like cooling centers or our uh, emergency uh, responses is trying to uh, encourage buildings to have a cool room in the building as well. All of that is really great, but not everyone can leave their unit to access those spaces. So making sure it's in the spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'd we'd be looking at that as an option.
0: Are you in, in? many cases, we've been hearing over the summer that uh, with the government, provincial government announcing that they were going to make eight thousand air conditioners available uh, to vulnerable low-income households in, over the next three years. There were reports that um, tenants, some of them, were told by their landlords they wouldn't be able to install the air conditioning units, uh, and I'm assuming the landlords are, uh, were concerned about the impact on the property itself, how the, how they would be installed, that sort of thing. Um, now, as you said, the tenancy rules are provincial, not municipal. How does, how does a bylaw in New Westminster get around that in, in your mind?
1: Well, that's what we need to look at and see. New Westminster has a, a history of being creative in finding solutions for tenants. An example of this is that we brought in a bylaw to prevent, prevent against renovations that was using business licenses, and it was very effective. It stopped renovate, renovations. In their tracks essentially in our municipality and the province later took that up but you're absolutely right in saying that uh, you know I've been hearing this from tenants as well in my community that landlords are saying that they can't install an air conditioner um, that it'll impact their tenancy I know myself I have signed a tenancy agreement that prohibits me having an air conditioner and there's a lot of rental units that like I used to live in a bachelor unit and I just had a sliding glass door a standard air conditioner wouldn't work in that so there's a lot of reasons why that program still left gaps for tenants and we're trying to address that and you know you asked me earlier if this is putting the the onus on landlords well it's putting the onus on landlords provide a livable unit for tenants and just like in the winter time they have to have access to heat just like we have access to plumbing and water we are saying that cooling is a necessity to life now. That's just the reality that we're in. And so, yes, landlords should have responsibility for that as well. Uh, uh,
0: you know, when you look at the temperatures, uh, you know, 35, 36, 37, 38, certainly in the interior, uh, those, those temperatures go very high. We're a bit more temperate, but we hit high numbers as well when it comes to temperature. Um, some would argue that eventually you are going to need some type of cooling system. We just can't rely on, you know, maybe a heat pump. But, you know, there's, there are going to be people who need the traditional air conditioner of some sort. Do you think this should be legislated, though, on a uh, province-wide level that, look, uh, landlords should be responsible for a cooling system just like they're responsible for providing heating?
1: Yeah, I absolutely absolutely agree with that. And, you know, you and I talked about this some months ago when a motion to that effect came to the Lower Mainland Local Government Association Conference.
2: Mm -hmm. And it
1: wasn't supported by the municipal councillors from around the Lower Mainland to ask the province to do that. So this motion that my colleague Tasha Henderson and I brought in was really in response to that. Well, if we're not going to ask the province to do something collectively as city councillors, we're going to do something in our own municipality. But I do think that this needs to be province-wide because we are not, it's not just that New Westminster is the only community impacted by this. Um, Tenants all over BC deserve the right to livable housing. Uh,
0: Why do you think the motion before the Lower Mainland Local Government Association failed in your mind?
1: Well, there's a few things that I can tell you for sure. One is that tenants are underrepresented at local government. Um, I myself, am the only renter on my city council in a city that is almost 50% renters. You know, and the arguments that I heard on the floor were the concern about how much this would cost landlords. And, you know, that is a fair question to ask ourselves. And we know that it costs some tenants their lives. So, you know, that is, that's the argument that I heard. I know what my priority is. And that's, making sure that people can survive extreme weather events. Um, and hopefully again, once, once we're able to explore what this would look like in New Westminster, hopefully other municipalities can pick it up as well. And hopefully the province will see that this really is the route to go.
0: Do you see that motion uh, being revived once again uh, and brought forward next year?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think it's worth having the conversation and again and again, because you know this summer was moderately hot. We don't know what next summer entails. So um as we see more and more climate events around our region and the province in the world and really feel the impacts of those ourselves for our neighbors, you know, on the news, I think we build empathy and we start to understand the scope of the problem um, and what those impacts will be on people. So I hope that people start to change their mind and see this as a really essential piece of work.
0: So the motion that was approved yesterday, how long before it comes back to council, the conversation continues and even a potential bylaw, how long do you think that will take?
1: I can't tell you for sure. I know that um, at the city of New Westminster, we love to task our our staff with challenging and unique work. Um, So I know that they have a a number of other projects that are going on, but again, even once we contemplate what a bylaw would look like, maybe bring in a bylaw, it would take some time for for buildings. It's not like often you bring in a bylaw and the buildings are changed. Mm -hmm. They would need to upgrade and and do that work. So um, hoping that we can bring back this conversation very quickly because the work will take some time and we know we don't have that much time before we see another event like this.
0: So do you think this could be done by the end of this year or are we talking about springtime?
1: I hope, I I would hope it's by the end of the year because again, by the time we implement it will be springtime. Um, I, I don't think we'll see the buildings upgraded by next summer just because these things do take time. So the sooner we can get this conversation going, the better.
0: And to confirm, you're the only municipality that you know in Metro Vancouver that's doing this right now.
1: Correct. Um, I know that uh, Christine Boyle in the City of Vancouver had encouraged some of similar work, and there is one municipality in Ontario that's looking at it as well, um, but we are we are the first to, to actively contemplate this.
0: Nadine, thank you for your time. Always enjoy our conversation. Uh, look forward to chatting with you soon.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much, Chaz.
0: Driverless cars may evoke images from sci-fi films to Saturday morning cartoons, but the prospect is hardly remote today. There are cars that already operate with minimal human assistance after all. Several companies like Tesla, Google's parent company Alphabet, and Amazon have been piloting these vehicles in cities across North America for many years now. Now proponents say driverless vehicles could reduce the stress of commuting, lower the number of accidents, and make traveling more sustainable. But critics have also raised concerns about safety risks to uh, to cost their potential to hurt the environment by making car travel actually easier. So what views do British Columbians have of self-driving cars? A new UBC study asked that question. Joining me now to discuss the issue uh, is uh, Mr. Gurdjieh Gill, civil engineering and PhD candidate at UBC and author of the study. Mr. Gill, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I just thank you for having me. Yeah, so what are the uh, people's views of EVs? What did the study tell you?
3: Well, uh, so Uh, we wanted to find out that there's lots of research about potential owners of these vehicles, but not much about other road users who need to interact with these vehicles if they want to share the road. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to find out how these other people feel. As it turns out, 41% of the BC population, Mm -hmm. they are very skeptical about uh, self-driving vehicles. And I should mention that this is not, what they reported. We observed this because people could report higher because they want to be perceived as Mm pro-STVs. So this is observed number. So 41% of the people are skeptical about this. But on the other hand, 34% of the BC population, they are actually optimist about this. And to clarify what I mean by skeptic, Mm -hmm. it means that these people believe Interacting with a self-driving vehicle is actually less safe than a similar interaction with a human-driven vehicle. So that's that's exactly what we wanted to measure.
0: Uh, how many participant, participants participants uh, were were part of this study?
3: Oh, eleven 1, hundred and thirty-three participants mm-hmm. from BC.
0: So what did, what's your takeaway overall from from this interaction with these eleven hundred participants? Uh, do you think at, the, at its core the the, the the anxiety is still there in regards to safe, safety, though?
3: Oh, yes. Oh, it's a very interesting point. You mentioned anxiety. So remember I talked about skeptics and mm-hmm. optimists? So we are measuring this bias people have. It could be either against these vehicles or it could be in favor of these vehicles. So what we found is that the biggest driver of this bias is actually people's emotional reaction to, these, to this new technology. Mm-hmm. So people who are anxious, when they think about developments in self-driving technology, those people are more likely to be skeptical. And people who are enthusiastic about these developments, they are more likely to be optimists. So this is the key driver. So people are not thinking about the benefits. It does not take a lot of rational thought, but mm-hmm. it's just the emotional Feeling the gut reaction they have to these vehicles, that is driving a lot of their perceptions and their support for policies.
0: I'm curious, was there a difference in age groups in regards to people's views and perceptions uh, of self-driving cars?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, as you might expect, people who are older they have a negative perception of uh, these vehicles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if I'm uh, uh, an MP or an MLA in order to look at your study, what, what should I take from that? Because part of technology, as you know very well, is, is there is that trepidation. I think your, 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 your study kind of uh, sh- you know, shows that uh, mm-hmm. f- when it comes to public policy. You know how we build laws around you know self-driving vehicles. Uh, in, you know you have to include safety and all those types of things. And mm-hmm. uh, in regards to that, uh, what should elected officials who want to draw up po- public policy on self-driving cars in our streets? What did what should they take from what what, what the study says today?
3: Yeah, uh, again, interesting question because this actually motivated the whole research because we were not looking this other side of the story. All Mm -hmm. these other road users, are they going to be accepting these new vehicles? So we asked six policy questions in our online survey, Mm -hmm. and those questions were very relevant to the context of uh, sharing the road with these vehicles. They were about pedestrians and cyclists. So what we found is that uh, 55% of the population says they would consider allowing these self-driving vehicles, if they are shared vehicles, they could be taxes or shuttles.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, the population has a clear consensus in terms of uh, having specific restrictions on these AVs. So 90% of the people want these vehicles to be identified clearly. They want to know that they are interacting with a self-driving vehicle. Mm-hmm. 89% of the people want to have a person in the driver's seat. No matter that technology could be advanced enough Mm -hmm. uh, based on the manufacturers that this vehicle is safe, but 90% of the people want a driver to take control in emergency situations or just to give sense of uh, comfort because they're so used to seeing a driver behind the windshield Mm -hmm. and to communicate it. And interestingly, 72% of the people do not want these vehicles to go near pedestrian priority zones so based on all this we are confident to say that first thing if uh, public agencies want to introduce avs they should start with a pilot testing program Mm -hmm. during that program they should have these restrictions that i just talked about there should be a driver it should be clearly identified they should not be allowed near pedestrian zones and Once people start getting comfortable and the experience is largely positive, only then uh, the introduction should be expanded elsewhere. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, You may recall, I think it was last summer, uh, there was somebody on the Lionsgate Bridge uh, applying makeup. As the vehicle was driving, I think they had a Tesla and it was in a self-driving mode. Uh, there was uh-huh. no injuries or anything, but, but they were applying makeup as they were driving. Now, the traffic was during Russia. It was slow, um, yeah. but somebody caught this on on their cell phone and, of course, it ended up on the news. Um, yeah. So uh, you can already see some you know, trepidation that people have. Now, the last couple of weeks, I've been in Taiwan. And I was doing a sort of a tour of the country with some lawmakers in the U.S. and looking at some of the technologies, particularly semiconductors. But as you know very well, they do, they're, they're leading the way in regards to research when it comes to EVs and the Internet. And they talked yeah. about how traffic signals should be talking to vehicles, uh, to roadways, yeah. and, and they, they actually were giving, giving us some of us a, a demonstration. But when I, mm-hmm. when I asked them about some of this, now they're at the point now, they're talking about putting extra screens into cars because they think eventually you won't even need a steering wheel in your vehicle, yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, I was thinking about what you're saying and people's perceptions of your study. And then when you talk to folks that are actually designing the future of EVs, and they're actually having, already having a conversation about not having steering wheels in these vehicles uh, 10, yeah. 20 years from now, or even less than that. I mean, this is going to come very quickly. It does give you a, a sense of the, you know, the wide difference between where the technology actually is and where it may be headed very quickly, to what you're saying and what you've raised, is there's a s- certain amount of skepticism and caution when it comes to
3: public safety. Yeah, that, that's the key word. The policy recommendations that we have, it's a cautious-tiered approach that you should start with pilot testing mm-hmm. and gradually uh, let, uh, let the introduction expand to other areas. But, and this is a big but, that people should largely be comfortable imagine that uh, you walk frequently but now there's this new vehicle on the road and you are you just do not know how you feel about this and it raises anxiety in you 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 have not seen a crash but you because you are feeling anxious about this you might stop walking as frequently you might not take the same facility so all this progress we have made in promoting these active modes, and now if we introduce these vehicles without being responsible, then there's a chance that we could uh, degrade the experience of these active mode users, and we, we do not want that. Yeah. And also, another thing on the development, uh, I went to a, a TRB conference. It's the biggest transportation conference in the whole world. I went there mm-hmm. in, Was- in Washington, D.C., 2015, I guess. And everybody was talking about these vehicles and it is they are going to be here tomorrow. They are going to be here. But as we have noticed that technology is one side and they are making progress. There are some uh, flaws still to resolve, but they're making progress. But the big uh, portion of gaining acceptance is how people feel about these vehicles. Are they going to allow these vehicles to operate on the road or not? Mm-hmm. So that, that's what we are looking, not the technology side, but how, how are the road users going to perceive these vehicles?
0: No, I think you raise a very good point. It comes down to still public perception, safety, and of course, yeah. how government responds to it through rules and regulations. That's for sure. Mr. Gill, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: All thank right, that—that that is Gurdil Gill. He's civil engineering PhD candidate at UBC and author of the study that came out of UBC. Uh, there are still cautious. Uh, the people are cautious in regards to, you know, EVs and driverless cars. I'm not sure if you uh, picked up today's Vancouver Sun. In there is a really great story by uh, Dan Famano, the uh, city columnist uh, for the paper. And what the article basically says is that some Vancouver developers have held condos empty for many years, up to five years in some cases, waiting for deep-pocketed buyers, so not putting them up uh, on the market. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, this practice is Dan Famano from the Vancouver Sun of the province. Dan, thank you for joining us.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Jazz.
0: So walk me through this. How would the process work here?
4: So essentially, you know, since back in 2017, Vancouver has had this empty homes tax, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's assessed as a, a certain percentage, and the percentage has changed a little bit over the years. Uh, but it's a, a certain percentage on the uh, home's assessed value if the home is empty for mo- for more than half the year. And ever since the idea was first floated in Vancouver, and Vancouver was kind of one of the uh, first jurisdictions in North America to do this, I believe it was the first in Canada, Um, since the first idea was, uh, you know, first publicly suggested back in 2016, Mm -hmm. the local development industry said, if you're going to do this, you should exempt what they call unsold inventory or standing inventory. Mm -hmm. So this is if you build a condo development with 100 units, and at the end of it, a couple of the units haven't been sold yet and they're still sitting there empty and they haven't yet been sold. The development industry was saying these should be exempt from the empty homes tax. Um, but they weren't exempted. They were included, uh, which wasn't as much of an issue for the three years of the tax because there just weren't a lot of unsold condos. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least, you know, that was, that was kind of what we heard from the city uh, over the years then this year it's a bit of a different market and when city staff came to council earlier this spring um they had recommended they said you know now things have changed and they're due because of rising interest rates changing market uh it sounds like there are more unsold condos when projects are finished and the development industry is saying that if we don't create a new exemption to exempt unsold condos going forward, mm-hmm. it could discourage development here. If, if, if people see um, that as adding risk to their projects, they may just not build the projects, or they could build them somewhere else, right? They mm-hmm. if, if, if Vancouver doesn't include this exemption, they can build it somewhere else. And the province's speculation and vacancy tax, which is kind of similar to Vancouver's empty homes tax, it came in afterwards, it does include an exemption for unsold inventory Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway so the city staff recommended to council earlier this year you could create it you could create it with a time limit say you know if the unit isn't sold for uh, a certain amount of time after the building is completed and it gets occupancy permits um, then eventually maybe it gets hit with the empty home tax. but council decided to create the exemption and create no time limit going forward so that's kind of the background that brings us where we are now so So, going forward mm -hmm these these unsold units will no longer be hit with the tax
0: so in this case a, a developer could hold on to those unsold units uh, until they feel that look the market's going to come back and as you said in this market right now with higher interest rates you may want to wait another year or two and and get a, a much higher price
4: yeah and in order to be eligible for the exemption the unit will have to be actively listed for sale so it's not you know they they can't keep the unit a secret if they want to get this exemption um so going forward as if they don't want to pay the empty homes tax for these unsold units, then they do have to list it throughout you know the year um but of course i you know i don't they can list it for whatever price they like mm-hmm. um and and if obviously you know it's in their interest they're in the business of selling homes presumably they want to sell these homes, but um it might be worth it for them to hold it for a certain amount of time until You know, they find a buyer that's going to pay the price that they want.
0: What do you think this, in regards to the practice itself, how do you think this would be perceived in the broader context and conversation around housing affordability?
4: You know, we thought it was interesting. I mean, this this debate played out earlier this year in the fall around whether to create this exemption for these unsold units um council decided to create the exemption but the new information that we got was you know i i filed an F, a freedom information request at the city to see if we could get some internal correspondence to see what if there were any emails or memos or internal reports around this and so that's what today's this, the story in today's paper is based on is a memo that came from the city's chief financial officer earlier this year to the mayor and council that included just a little bit more information than what we had previously known and it what it showed was as you mentioned that some units were being held empty you know not just in the last year or so when we've had the this different market with rising interest rates, but some of these condos that were newly built and had never been sold they 'd been empty for two, three, five years, so predating rising interest rates and all this now it's important to note it's a it's a very small number of homes in the grand scheme of you know the overall housing market mm-hmm. um it's 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 a little bit less than hundred units ninety six homes, 96 condos that were unsold as of last year, about a third of which had been empty for multiple years. So no one's going to try to argue that these 100 homes overall are going to, you know, if they were rented out tomorrow, it's not going to, you know, overnight end the housing shortage or the housing crisis. Um, But I think one one thing that I thought was interesting is that for several years some developers were willing and able to keep units empty for years at a time even when they were paying in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars a year into the empty homes tax so it was expensive for them to keep these units empty they were paying in in you know at least one case there was a developer paying 300 grand just last year for two empty condos uh, that had been empty since 2000. That were had been built and had occupancy permits since 2017. Mm-hmm. And so I guess you know th- this was a cost of doing business. They were able to keep them empty and pay 300 thousand just last year. And I'm not sure how much in previous years, but presumably hundreds of thousands over several years. Um, and all of that money previously went into affordable housing, the city's affordable housing initiatives. Right. All of the empty home tax money goes into affordable housing programs. Mm-hmm. And so, going forward into the future, if developers are building new buildings this year or next year with unsold units, it's going to be less expensive for them to hold those units empty. They're not going to have to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the empty home tax, which then goes into affordable housing because of these
0: new changes. Mhm. In your sense of city hall, I mean, are they look the, you you want developers building at the end of the day and you do have to work yeah. with the, with the community yep. and, and I understand that. But yep. there there is as you cover and you cover this extensively, there's this desperate need for more housing in the city. I mean, do you think uh, it seems like council stuck in a between rock and a hard place where they want to at least oh, placate yeah. the industry at the same time they realize yep. this does not look good.
4: Well, it, it's tricky. And I mean, that was you know that, that that was the rationale that uh, the ABC majority on council gave for creating this exemption. Uh, you know the mayor Kenson was very clear. He said people who build housing they can build it anywhere. Capital is mobile. Uh, if Vancouver makes it too difficult or too onerous, too expensive, too risky to develop housing, these people can go build housing somewhere else in a different part of Metro Vancouver, in a different Canadian province, in a different country. Right, and. ABC has been very clear their priority is to get more housing approved, get more housing built, get more housing. And so, you know, we, we talked to people in the development industry and, you know, the, there's, some of them are quoted in the story in today's paper. And then some of our earlier stories about this, where they said that if this exemption was not on the books, if developers were afraid that they were going to be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in extra taxes on units that, potentially take longer to sell Mm -hmm. um, that it's going to discourage people and they may just not pursue projects in Vancouver and so that is, yeah, as you say that's kind of the, the tension and the balance that they're, you know, trying to find the the right balance. Trying to balance. My
0: final question, you know, you cover City Hall. I mean, you know, uh, Ken Sim and and the council want to get more houses built, and I get all of that. Do you think uh, the the bottleneck at City Hall is being dealt with? And I don't don't mean to, you know, single out Vancouver, other municipalities Mm. have the same issue. Are you seeing anything? Are you hearing from folks that say, look, we are seeing some changes with this new council. Things are getting a little bit easier in regards to getting in there, getting projects approved and, and start building.
4: I'm I'm not sure. I mean, we do continually hear from the city, and this goes back a few years. The city has said that they know that uh, red tape is a problem. They want to improve efficiency. They want to speed up permitting. They want to make things simpler. And um, there is, a, you know, th- th- this is an ongoing thing, and there's going to be more policies coming to council in the coming uh, months and years of this term. But um, but it, it, it may be a little early um, to say. I'm not sure. And, uh, yeah, you'd have to talk to people directly in the development industry. I'm not hearing people say that, you know, things have changed. It's been less than a year since the last election, right? So this new council, you know, is less than a quarter into their mandate. Um, I don't think we've heard of a big overall. But there is an important suite of changes that um, won't change everything, but that's supposed to simplify building in low-density areas. That is coming to council in just a couple of weeks. It's going to be one of their first meetings after their summer break. Developers do say that one is significant, but I mean, again, it takes so long to really find out the, the effects of these of of these changes.
0: Yeah, and I think the to of the mayor on next week. We'll we'll talk to him about that because I think that's yeah. one of the big promises he made. That's for sure. I'm not going to hold and you accountable. one of that. his top priorities. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Dan, thanks but so much. Will want to talk about that. I okay, thanks, it. Jeff. Let's talk a little bit about water and water rights. Uh, now, you've heard a lot uh, about farmers uh, during uh, the wildfires. Now, I was away during that time, but I recall reading stories about farmers, of course, um, needing help in regards to feeding their livestock during um, the wildfires uh, in the interior, but it is an issue that is still ongoing. Uh, something that was reiterated, reiterated to me today as I was watching a YouTube video in regards to uh, farmers in the interior uh, absolutely angry about the lack of access to water. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue and the potential impact to us here in Metro Vancouver region is Ian Payton. He's a Shadow Minister for Agriculture and Food uh, with the BC United Party. Ian, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. Now, walk me through what is happening in the interior in regards to farmers and their access to water.
5: Well, Jazz, I've traveled a good portion of B.C. this summer to uh, drought-laden areas that have been affected uh, farmers and ranchers, not only by drought, but fire, Mm -hmm. uh, flooding, all those things. Um, You know, the drought has been horrendous all the way from Fort St. John, Dawson Creek, down to uh, Vanderhoof, uh, Williams Lake, etc., So what's happened is um, there's a total lack of feed for for livestock for these ranchers to get their cattle through the winter. But uh, to make things even worse, in many parts of B.C. now, government is sending out these guys, uh, you know, basically in police type uniforms carrying guns uh, that are saying, hey, sorry, pal, uh, it's August, whatever. Shut down your irrigation. Uh, No more irrigating for, for the farmer or the rancher. So what in the world has happened to agriculture in this country where government is now shutting down? They talk the talk about food security, but they're going to farmers and ranchers and saying, shut down your irrigation. We don't need that happening. And this is feed that's being grown to produce uh, beef and and lamb and milk and all these different things uh, that we eat every day in our grocery stores. So
0: how, but I mean, I'm just trying to use a healthy bit of common sense here. You have to irrigate your, your, um, uh, you know, your, your, what you're growing there. How can you just stop? I mean, I I don't understand. Somebody in government's got to say, wait a minute here. They do have to water what they're growing. That's the nature of what they do. How can you just stop it?
5: Absolutely. This is, You know, as as the shadow minister, the critic for agriculture, and Jazz being uh, a farmer pretty much my whole life, I understand what it takes to grow crops. And the minute you take away water from, you know, let's face it, there's climate change. Our summers are drier and drier and drier than we've ever seen before, even here in the Fraser Valley. If you're a farmer in the Fraser Valley or anywhere in BC, if you don't have an irrigation system, you're out of business. So it's so important. Now, Jazz, let's talk about this. You're not going to believe the email I just got um, 30 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. They've suddenly told farmers in Chilliwack and Abbotsford that if you're on a well system or drawing any water from a creek or a river, that you're to cease using water or cut back by 50%. A dairy cow will drink 100 litres of water per day on a hot summer day. And And are you kidding me? Telling farmers that they... They they can no longer water their their livestock. Wow, I'm I'm, try-
0: <laughs> I'm still trying to wrap my head around this for a second. So you got this email what 30, 30 minutes ago? You were saying
5: 30 minutes ago from a good buddy of mine up in uh, Chilliwack. that's a dairy farmer.
0: So it, this is not just an interior issue. It's now sort of seeping into into it's, the lower mainland exactly. as well.
5: Exactly, it's it's leaked its way down into. Uh, the Fraser Valley. So
0: I'm trying to wrap my head around, sorry, I'm trying to understand, these are farmers that are, in the case of the interior, I was understanding it's alfalfa and many other things that they're growing that ends up feeding animals that leads to, as you say, dairy, dairy cows being fed, so for milk and for yogurt, this, that, this is what all this leads to. Where is this water coming from in the interior that they so desperately want to preserve? Like where, where are these farmers getting the water from?
5: Well, this is a crazy thing. There's the, the NDP government is providing absolutely no science, no data to any of these farmers and ranchers to say, hey, here's proof that um, the that you guys are making the creek or river nearby go down. Now, let me tell you, these guys are not pumping water out of the creek or the rivers or the streams. They're pumping from 200-foot uh, deep wells on their own property that they paid for. So tell me where the correlation is between Pumping out of a well to irrigate your crops on your own property, uh, which is a quarter of a mile or half a mile away from the stream, it, there's no data, there's no science that, that the farmers are causing any of these streams or rivers to to lower their their levels this time of year. They're obviously being lowered by the drought that everybody else is seeing.
0: So what happens next year? I mean, this can't continue. I, I'm still trying to wrap my trying to understand why government would do this. What happens next now?
5: Well. The thing that frustrates me as a farmer myself my whole life, Jazz, is agriculture used to be really at the top rung of the ladder in Canada back in the, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Now it's like agriculture doesn't even matter to, to politicians anymore, and that has got to change. You know, if we want to talk about food security and start growing food for our people right here in British Columbia, you know, you've got to have common sense and let farmers irrigate their crops uh, you know and 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 give them compensation for things like fires and floods. You know uh, it has got to get back up to a, a a a thing of importance in this province.
0: So you know farmers are not political people but you never want to poke them and my my guess is this is really uh, going to have a lot of folks pretty angry pretty quick. I mean is that your sense in the interior?
5: Oh my goodness. Uh I'm getting calls uh you know jazz up around Westwold, uh, Falkland um you know, Douglas Lake area up towards Kamloops. There's meetings that uh, took place on August 18th. The farmers and ranchers got together to talk about this. There wasn't one person from government showed up at that meeting. There's another meeting coming up this Saturday, and I'm hoping, even though I've got family issues going on with a wedding on my farm, I'm hoping to get up there and attend the meeting in Westwold and listen to the plight of all these farmers up there on the uh, Salmon River up around West Wolf.
0: So do you think, uh, you were mentioning um, the email you just received half an hour ago from Chilliwack, do you think there's going to be more of these stories in the valley as well now, or they are just basically told don't irrigate your crops?
5: Well, not only don't irrigate your crops, they're basically telling dairy farmers, and I mean, dairy farming is big now in the Fraser Valley. There's not that many dairy farms left that are milking you know, sixty, seven year cows, I mean, these dairy farms have 200 head of cattle, mm-hmm. 500 head, you know, even a thousand head of cattle that are all drinking water, potable water all day long. So how could you possibly tell dairy farmers that are producing food for us that, um, you know, you better quit, wa- uh, you know, providing water for your cattle to drink.
0: And I just want to clarify, this is a mandate coming from the provincial government only, or is there, is, is there an overlap with the federal government as well?
5: No, strictly for provincial government. All right. And I, I'm going to send you that information, Jazz. Yeah, it's, please it's do. It's unbelievable that um, that they should be so naive to tell farmers and ranchers, quit irrigating your crops, and now they're telling dairy farmers, quit uh, providing water for your cattle.
0: That is just ridiculous. All right, we'll, we'll we'll follow it here and hopefully get the Minister of Agriculture on tomorrow or even um, by the end of the show. We'll uh, effort uh, that I'll, for sure. So, uh, absolutely. Ian, I, Ian, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you raising this issue. We'll talk very soon.
5: Great. Thanks so much, Jazz.
0: Let's talk about the housing market here uh, in British Columbia, especially here in Metro Vancouver. Now, getting into that market is never easy. The explosion of uh, housing prices has become a massive source of inequality which can be addressed with progressive property tax reform, according to new research from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Now, the centre says that BC's residential real estate has ballooned to over $2.1 trillion. Now, that vast wealth remains minimally taxed. Uh, The majority of that $2.1 trillion, 1.5 of that uh, is in uh, residential property wealth, is land value alone. The study says that it's time we tax some of that land wealth, and use those dollars to build more affordable housing. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Alex Hemingway, senior economist and public finance policy analyst for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I was looking at uh, this study. Uh, Tell me, why do we need property tax reform uh, here in British Columbia in your mind?
6: Well, look, I, I, we all know that we're in a in a housing crisis and, and we've seen home prices and rents rise dramatically over a couple of decades amid that housing crisis and, and the shortage that we're in. Uh, now, the flip side of those how, of those high prices is that property wealth uh, has absolutely ballooned in this province and it's become a massive source of inequality. Uh, and that's really the focus of this report. So, look, it, just the increase in residential property wealth uh, in BC has amounted to $1.7 trillion in less than two decades. So, we're talking a, a, about a, a massive pool of, of property value and wealth here. And uh, really, what the report does is lay out a menu of uh, actually provincially focused property tax policy options that can help address that inequality. A raised revenue that can go towards badly needed public investments, including in affordable housing uh, and also, uh, in fact, make uh, uh, real estate less enticing for passive forms of investment. We get into issues like land value taxes in the report as well. So that, that's it at a high level.
0: Um- Explain to me how how the tax would work. Uh, then would it be uh, across the board for homeowners, or would it be focusing on a, a small percentage of homeowners to pay this this new tax? Uh, walk me through what kind of revenue it would generate as well.
6: Yeah. So there's a. We wanted to lay out a menu of options here, so so they vary, uh, uh, largely focusing at the top end, but not entirely. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples. So we we've, we've gone part way down the road of progressive property taxation in BC. You know the provincial government brought in the additional school tax on property value above three million dollars uh, a number of years ago. So one of the policy options here is to actually increase those rates just above $3 million, so that's affecting less than 2% of the most expensive properties in the province, uh, and actually adding a new bracket above $7 million, that could bring in $350 million a year in revenue. That's that's our estimate. Another, uh, Just to give you a flavor of one of the other options uh, that we propose here is actually taxing the total real estate holdings of large landowners rather than taxing each property separately. So you might own a dozen or, or 50, you know, $500,000 million dollar condos and not be affected uh, by uh, that additional school tax above $3 million. But if we tax the total holdings, that would get at some of those larger landowners as well. So that's one of the options we explore in the report. There, you're looking at close to a billion dollars in, in revenue potential.
2: hmm
0: Uh, What do you say to the argument from people who I'm sure are listening right now? Wait a minute here. I I put the down payment down. I saved for that down payment. I spent a lot of my life paying off that mortgage. And yes, property taxes have, I'm sorry, property values have gone up in that time. Uh, But uh, why am I being taxed for something I've already paid for? I have no control over that land that's going up. Uh, Why should I be hit? Yes, it's a small percentage of folks that may have $3 million homes or whatever it may be. Uh, But why should I be taxed when I've already you know, I've 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 put the hard work in. I've I've paid off my home.
6: Well, I think yeah, it's it. There's a there's something interesting to unpack there because there's the hard work, and then and there's the the land value increase through no fault of my own. So there's a bit of a tension between those two points, and I think that's important to get at. I think many uh, folks in British Columbia who have been lucky enough to become property rich understand that that those land wealth gains have been a stroke of luck. You know, that that's where the value increase is coming. It's the value of the land. It's not improvements to the to the buildings on the property. That That's not where it's coming from. Uh, many folks understand uh, that that's like winning the lottery and that's unintentionally come at the expense of others uh, with high housing prices, with growing inequality, and that's having a corroding effect on the social fabric. So I, I, I fully acknowledge it's not an easy conversation, but when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, wealth transfers on the order of, uh, you know, a trillion, trillion and a half dollars. That's so massive that it's a conversation that we have to have. And uh, uh, I think, you know, uh, looking at some of these, uh, particularly the the top end uh, focused taxes is actually uh, something that is uh Politically palatable in a province like BC, and and you saw things like the that tax above three million dollars uh, that w- that was brought in uh, were relatively popular in the polling. So I think you know it's a tough conversation, but it's one we need to have. Mm-hmm.
0: Now I think in the report there was also a suggestion of applying a progressive property tax bracket at a lower threshold, so one point yep. five million dollars to cover, I guess, a greater portion of residential properties. Now one point five million is. Probably a starter home, a single family home in the suburbs these days. Um, uh, do, do you think? I mean, at, at the at this point, when we talk about this issue, is this remotely palatable? Do you think like any elected official is going to take this on? Because I, I mean, people already like complain about property taxes. We've certainly in the last year or two, they've gone up significantly compared to previous years post COVID. Um, you know, how do you sell this to the public? That's going to go. Wait a minute here. I pay my property taxes. You're telling me now I have to pay a little bit more because my land values have gone up significantly in the last twenty years.
6: Yeah, look, I, I think there's a there's a few things to say there. Uh, when we talk about the option that starts at 1.5 million, yeah, that's that's broader base. That would affect about 12 percent of a BC household. so it's still the top end, but it's it's a, it's a lot of folks. Uh, and one of the points that we put forward there is that you know for folks who are uh, uh, property rich but cash cash flow limited, mm-hmm. uh, this can be a deferrable surtax, right? So that this can be deferred until the sale of the property, till those big value gains are realized. That That's one way of approaching it. But we also have to realize, and I think just an important piece of context here is that as property values have skyrocketed, uh, our property tax rates, our rates on assessed value have declined dramatically. Uh, in this province, in the high value centers, particularly in places like Vancouver, that's how we get to a situation where the property tax rates in Vancouver, but as a result of the way that we design the property tax system, are uh, near the lowest in, low, in, in North America. And that has some negative consequences. That that increases the inequality. It essentially means that we're locking in those land wealth gains. We're never going to talk about uh, uh, redistributing that, even though that uh, you know, land wealth gain comes uh, comes from uh, uh, collective efforts of a thriving city, of public investments in infrastructure. That's where land value comes from, as opposed to the to the building value. Uh, and having low property tax rates, ultra low rates, as we have also makes real estate particularly enticing for passive investment. I mean, if you think about it, there are very few investments where as uh, the value of the investment increases, the property tax rate decreases. And that's how our property tax system works. That's a problem as well, and it spills over in, in, into the housing crisis.
0: Why are, why are our property taxes low in, in, in your mind compared to other cities? How did we get here? Yeah,
6: it's, a, yeah it, it's, a, it's essentially a mechanical effect of the way the property tax system works. So if you think about how other taxes work, income tax, sales tax, we set rates and those rates apply as people's incomes and uh, uh, expenditures vary. With property tax, those rates are changed every year. So as uh, property values increase, the mill rate property tax rate is decreased year after year to ensure that revenue doesn't uh, uh, go beyond whatever the city has said it's planning to, to mm-hmm. spend that year. Now, what we're saying is you know, that has a negative effect on inequality. Also, if you brought in a little uh, extra revenue, Perhaps focusing on the top end, you can put that money uh, directly into uh, badly needed investment in affordable housing. So you can uh, address the problem from both sides in that sense.
0: Now, the various levels of, of property uh, tax increases that you talked about will raise, you know, dollars from 356 million to a billion. You were mentioning in our conversation, even more, uh, depending on what the threshold is. Uh, ultimately, this money would, one assume, go towards building more affordable housing. Um, is the problem if if supply is the issue in regards to building more affordable housing ultimately? If that's the ultimate goal, uh, one could argue that look, we're we're in this position because the federal government and the provincial government, to a certain degree, but mostly the federal government, got out of the affordable housing business um, in the '80s and early '90s in the in regards to their fight against the deficit. Uh, in the 1970s, I think we peaked early '70s in regards to home building in this. country at about 220,000 homes nationally. We're still in and around that number many decades later, which of course shows how far behind we are. Should we not be focusing on that and get the governments back into the house building business, or at least subsidizing affordable housing, the building of affordable housing, Rather than worrying about these property tax increases uh, that sometimes, as you know, when these things go into general revenue can get lost with the uh, pet projects that politicians want to have well instead the federal government should be involved in focusing once again on getting more houses built
6: I think it's a it's an important question and, and you know I've published other work on on the housing crisis. the housing crisis is a, is complex and absolutely to bring down housing prices and make housing more affordable we need to massively increase public investment in non-market housing we need to increase the overall housing supply dealing with you know municipal level zoning roadblocks uh, that have been uh, suppressing housing creation for decades those are key elements of it the property tax reform question serves a related but distinct purpose it can help in terms of uh, uh, raising some of the revenue for that investment Uh, It can help by uh, reducing passive investment uh, in in real estate when we talk about a land value tax, for example. Uh, But fundamentally, and this is really a focus of the report, uh, we're talking here when it comes to property tax reform about addressing that accumulated massive inequality in land wealth uh, that's occurred as we have seen uh, property values run up by $1.7 trillion in two decades. You know, if we uh, make some real progress in terms of building housing and can flatline prices for for years to come that would uh, represent major progress on affordability uh but we would still have had this massive transfer of wealth take place uh and significantly increasing inequality in the province and that's something that we need to uh address as well <clears throat> excuse me and i think it's a conversation that we need to have i'll just quickly note one of the uh uh other proposals that we put forward in the report is that ahead of the next provincial election, we ought to, as British Columbia, convene a citizens' assembly on land and property tax reform because these are difficult uh, political questions. There are trade offs to these policies, but it's a conversation we need to have if we're serious about addressing inequality and about uh, addressing the housing crisis.
0: Alex, as always, thanks for your time.
6: Thanks so much, Jeff.